Hi, my name is Germ, and this is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. Uh, slight uh, balls up in the in the timing. Uh, I blame I blame time zones. <laughs> I am joined on the other side of your screen by probably the man who has been the most correct out of anybody I've ever read about. <laughs> You've never been wrong, Peter. Oh, yes, I have. <laughs> about what? <laughs> oh, many things. I mean, one is constantly wrong, but uh, the, the thing is to try to learn from it when one is. So and thank you very much for... A lot of my life is meant to be wrong. And that, uh, that was very strong. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you. Thank you, Mr. Peter Hitchens, uh, author... Journalist, you write for the Mail on Sunday. You've also written for the Spectator, the Guardian, and a bunch of others. Um, and uh, you've I published. Write, a... I don't write for the Guardian anymore. You're working from a very out of date Wikipedia entry, which uh, never gets updated because the the only person who ever kept my Wikipedia entry accurate was me, and now <laughs> I'm not allowed to be. I've been banned from Wikipedia, so it's <laughs> in time. The idea of the Guardian asking me to write for them now is is, is 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 about as likely as the People's Daily asking me to write for them. It's it's a ridiculous, out of date thing. Mm. The Guardian is used to be a, a newspaper of the old fashioned radical left, which is prepared to entertain dissenting opinion, and very occasionally I, I wrote for it. Now it's yeah. it's just a government rag. But I mean, you write for the Mail on Sunday, um, Hitchens blog. I do write for the Mail on Sunday. Yeah, that is. That is that is still the case, but I say the, the, the Wikipedia entry on me is I, I used to uh, to intervene on it to make it accurate, not to, to, to remove expressions mm. of critical opinion on it. But I had a row with Wikipedia, which is features in that you've published. I know, and it, basically, they're all the same book. Uh, which uh, you were a former correspondent in Moscow. What is all that about? Oh, the. Uh, about the most around about 1980, mm. when I was working for the Daily Express, which was then a, a, a real newspaper, uh, I went to Poland to uh, actually to, to try and find and interview Lech Wałęsa, the leader of the Solidarity Movement, and successfully did so. And at that point, I realised that the the turmoil then beginning in Eastern Europe was probably the greatest story of my lifetime. Mm. And I devoted an enormous amount of energy and uh, ambition and, uh, and, and work to trying to get out there and yeah. spend as much time there as I possibly could. And the culmination of this was that in the summer of 1990, a bit late, but not too late, I mm. went to live in Moscow, the very end of the Soviet era. And as a former Marxist-Leninist, I was yeah. triply fascinated by this. It was, an, it was an enormously dramatic story. In any case, Moscow is the most captivating city and the whole thing as an experience was uh was was the the most significant of, of my life i think yeah i mean but and I that's an interesting two years and I, when i arrived uh by train from ostend it was a uh, it was still the, the soviet union and when i left across the bering strait into alaska in october 1992 it was russia mm. 
And there's quite an interesting symbolism here because your early life, you were very much what a revolutionary socialist of the uh, of the Trotsky order, so to speak. Is that? Uh, well, yes, I... these things are so complicated beyond me. Uh, but yes, I was. I belonged to a, a grouplet called the called the International Socialists. Mm. Uh, from about 1968 to 1975. Uh, we, a, a proper Trotskyist would say that we were because we differed on some theological points, but mm. we were Trotskyists in that we were communists, but we did not uh, in any way support or endorse the Soviet government, right. which is the big, uh, the big buy between Trotskyists and Stalinists. But then, I mean... Today, you, you, you see yourself, I'm guessing, more of this sort of classical conservatism, Edmund Burke-esque. There's obviously a big disconnect between that sort of revolutionary socialist uh, thought and Burkean conservatism. Uh, I'm guessing this, this was a gradual evolution of thought, this, this sort of change. No, no, no. On the contrary, the whole basis of and Burke was not a systematic philosopher and had no particular theory, but the, the mm. whole basis of his fame uh, remains his great work, The Reflections on the Revolution in France, and his rejection of the uh, of what was at that time the very common enthusiasm for the French Revolution. Uh, is this is what makes him great, and mm. so there's a direct appeal. For former revolutionaries, in who, who, who can but who can both see why revolutions are attractive and also why they're disastrous. In, yes, in Burke, who was, by the way, not a Tory, he was a Whig. Uh, but I don't really have a political position as such anymore. I'm, I, I'm basically, I'm an anti-utopian. I think that yes, all utopian projects should be treated with great suspicion and when necessary opposed because they do so much harm and that that ultimately that's I'm I, I, I wasn't just inoculated against utopianism I, I, I suffered from it in the full feverish form and as a result I have permanent lifelong immunity from it and I feel I should pass on this benefit to as many other people as I can while I still mm. have the power to do so and I mean and con continuing with that line you you're a fan I'm guessing then of um, monarchy, which I am as well, because democracy, for example, is fairly utopian. Well, I'm not a fan of anything. Uh, all, all my positions are basically ones of, of caution, uh, so that in economics, I've, I'm compelled by reality to describe myself as a social democrat. I don't believe in the unfettered free market because mm. one sees what it does. Uh, but on the other hand, I also don't believe in a, in a, in a totally state-controlled Economy. I, I completely accept the need for free trade unions, for instance. For sure. I've been yes. a trade, trade union member all my life. On the other hand, I, I'm, I'm hugely conservative about, about social matters, such as the, the married family mm. uh, and the, uh, rigor and discipline in, in, in education uh, and self-control by conscience, based, in, in my view, preferably on Christian belief. Uh, so... I have a mixture of opinions which don't fit into the electoral uh, or or tribal characteristics of many countries. Monarchy, 
constitutional monarchy such as was devised by Britain in the glorious revolution of 1688 seems to me to be a very intelligent way of managing things. Uh, I've often theorized about a country which had a monarchy but no monarch. Uh, you have an empty throne. But the, the, the whole point about it being that it is empty, mm. that, that politicians must be kept away from the, the grand and ceremonial and worshipful parts of power. Uh, because it goes to their head. And we saw in the yeah. 20th century what happened when politicians rose to the point where, where, where crowds adulated them and they were worshipped as the great leader. And this yes. seems to me to be both dangerous and sacrilegious. So a monarch, a constitutional monarchy is, is like the king on a chessboard. He can't really do very much. But by simply being there, he prevents other other pieces from moving into his space. And that uh, that's all. I've got no great enthusiasm for monarchy. I don't keep picture books of the royal family or particularly like what I hear about the, the members of it. But I, I think that say monarchy prevents worse things from happening. It's not a yeah. not, no, no kind of enthusiasm. Uh, well, I mean, I, I love the way you you elaborated on that. Um, it, it's it's better to to not be a fan necessarily, but but approach something with caution. Uh, but I mean, look. There, there, there is a significant difference between sort of revolutionary socialist thinking and, of course, sort of more modern sort of Burkean classical conservatism. And I mean, that's been a big part of your of your writing for years now uh, in terms of the British Conservative Party, for example, and how it's moved away from its conservative roots. Well, they, no, I, I, it doesn't it hasn't done that because it never had any conservatives. Roots. The, the, the Tory party is a, is a machine for obtaining office for the sons of gentlemen. And as I repeatedly say, it would guillotine the Queen in Trafalgar Square tomorrow if it thought it would win an election by doing so. It's never been conservative. It has nothing conservative to have moved away from. It has had one or two more or less conservative uh, governments, one thinks mm. particularly about Salisbury. But as a party, it has no dogma. Uh, and, or indeed any principles, and as a result, it tends to adopt the principles whoever, of whoever is dominant in the culture of the time. And it's it, it, what it's now done is it's adopted what I regard as the Euro-Communist principles of Blairism, which is the, mm. the predominant political current of our time, it, 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 which most people, because they've never had a Marxist training, are completely incapable of understanding. And they they gape at me in, in sort of amazement, so I've gone mad when I say. Look, you do understand, don't you, that the Blair government was crammed with supposedly former Marxists and was probably the most left-wing government Britain has had since Cromwell. And they said, no, 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 but Blair was a Tory. I said, no, well, no, actually, uh, you have it completely wrong, but you couldn't understand it. And this is why I insist that my, my, my revolutionary experience constantly informs uh, my current anti-utopianism. Uh, if you didn't, if you haven't had a Marxist Leninist training, you're, you're you're going to be completely unable to understand what's going on, and most people are. And I just mm. look on. And I think I'm never going to be able to explain this to these people, and if I do, they'll just think I'm out of the bend. So, it, it's it, but one of the central issues of modern British politics, what happened in 1997 and what the character of it was, is so completely misunderstood by almost everybody that it's it's almost impossible for me to have a political conversation. With anybody, because they simply they simply don't get it. If they'd that, been if they'd been one of my comrades in 1968, they possibly would. Peter, that's a fascinating insight. You 
you say that the conservative party has never been conservative that would you then say the same thing then about margaret thatcher's um uh party also not conservative yeah margaret thatcher was not conservative at all it never did a single conservative thing uh, you know, the old um, Rochester, uh, Rochester sneer about uh, Charles II, the, the wisest fool in Christendom, on whom no man r relies on, um, who never said a foolish thing, nor ever did a wise one. Well, I don't think Margaret Thatcher ever said an, un an unconservative thing, but she never did, an un never did a conservative thing. If you look at her government, it was, it, it, it was uh, in economic terms, it was classically liberal. Yeah. Same goes to Ronald Reagan. Uh, and in terms of, of politics, there was, there was absolutely nothing, for instance, to restore the, the strength and stability of the married family. Mm. Mm. There was nothing to restore rigor in education. There was nothing done to, to repair the terrible damage done to criminal justice uh, during the, the Wilson and Callaghan governments, particularly by Roy Jenkins. Mm. Nothing at all. Uh, and she, you must remember that her, her admired father, Alderman Roberts, uh, was an alderman for the Liberal Party in the town of Grantham. Uh, she, she was a liberal, and, it, it, and, and Reagan was a, uh, had, had been a New Dealer. Mm. Uh, again, not a, not a man of conservative instincts at all, but weirdly, in both cases, beloved by conservatives because they, they won elections. And because in the initial parts of their governments, they spread quite a lot of money around them. Uh, not by any means to everybody, uh, but no, I don't think either of those okay. either of those governments were conservative at all. And I've written at length about about it. Thatcher herself was a conservative person. Mm. Uh, she she was patriot and all, all kinds of ways. But then you must also remember that in her in, in, in her own family life, uh, she 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 went off and pursued uh, a career, and uh, when she had uh, quite young children. Which is not a conservative thing to do. I mean, it's one right. of the reasons why conservative women in politics, along the uh, the Phyllis Schlafly model, are quite rare. If you could overhaul the Conservative Party in a nutshell, then what what would be some of your your first your first um, sort of knife stabs? My, my my whole attitude towards conservative party is that it should be destroyed. Uh, De mm. Landarest Torio Partio, as I say, it's it's the, the, the only thing you can do with it is, is is cram it down the plumbing and jump on the soles of its feet and pull the flush as hard you can to destroy it. has no, it is an obstacle. It's of no use to conservative persons at all. If you want conservatism in Britain, first thing you have to do is get rid of that awful party, because it maintains the pitiful illusion among so many people that they have a friend at Westminster when they have none. And at, at election times, people vote tribally for it. And yeah. the, the most disastrous moment was in 2010 when David Cameron went to the election asking them to endorse his Blairization of the Conservative Party, which uh, uh, here I need to do a small Maynard Keynes digression. And Keynes said that every, every politician who claimed not to be influenced by an, an, an ideology was in fact the slave of some defunct economist or philosopher. And what happened to the Conservative Party was that it adopted uh, the Euro-Communist prescriptions of Blairism. Uh, but whether this is worse or better, you'll have to work out for yourself. 
mm. without in any way understanding what it was adopting. And you, you actually have in, in Britain, the Conservative Party, a, a Euro-Communist party whose members are not Euro-Communists because they don't have any political understanding whatsoever. Mm. Uh, they're mm. a careerist. And it, but that is his character. And David Cameron went to the went to the country in 2010 asking Conservative voters to endorse this. And alas, in, in sufficient numbers to, to at least form a coalition, they did so. And that, for me, was... Uh, was a tragic sign of the, the, the result of having a, a nominally conservative party, which at general election times obtains the tribal loyalty of so many people. Yeah, they voted for their own destruction, and everything that's happened ever since uh, to anything anybody regards as conservative in Britain, and it's almost all been wiped out and destroyed by that, uh, was the result of that failure to do what I urged at the time, which was that people should abstain en masse and let the Conservative Party die. Nothing that could have followed would, in my view, have been worse than what did follow. Well, I mean, Boris Johnson hasn't made it any better. <laughs> well, no, it, it, it's interesting. In, in mm. The current government is taking actions which, uh, if even a, two years ago, if a Labour government had done that, Tory opposition would have pretty much called them communists, uh, both in terms of the uh, extraordinarily uh, extravagant spending of non-existent money uh, and the the interference in, in private life and the colossal damage to the economy. And yet there he stands doing it, apparently wholly unaware that there's any contradiction mm. between what he claims to be and what he's doing. I just want to quickly segue here because this is very relevant um your your views on this pandemic have been it feels as if they've been you know you've been plagiarizing my views <laughs> uh, because they're precisely the same as mine i've been extremely critical of lockdown measures and masks and i find it i find it interesting and i'm sure you'll agree with me how there's been this very strange mass adoption and trust of uh, of the state and and this is a global thing it's the most bizarre experience i think i can remember in in my life how people have suddenly latched onto the state um i'm guessing the same has happened in the uk very much so i think people are tired of being free uh, and i also think it's one of the many many consequences of the collapse of christianity particularly but not exclusively protestant christianity in large parts of the world in the past century and a half. Uh, the, the people need something to fear, mm. uh, and they also uh, and, and they, they, they also quite, quite like being told what to do. The Christian religion, when it was seriously observed, actually fulfilled some of those needs. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, mm. as Scripture actually says. And the, the, those, those, the fear which people need in some way as a motivation for, for doing things was, was provided in that, but it was provided outside politics and outside power. You would often find in countries where people, where, where, where serious Christian belief was common, uh, there was also a considerable disrespect for government. Uh, and I think the two things were connected. Uh, you, you look at the great, um, the great uprisings against uh, against absolute or, or, or monarchical power of the 17th 
mm. century in in uh, England and Scotland, and these were largely uh, driven by and fought for by uh, very se severely Protestant Christians. That's gone now. So that this this is something which happens to societies where they uh, a, a fundamental belief disappears and something else rushes in to make way for it. Uh, so there is that uh, beyond doubt. Uh, the, 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 the 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 huge power of fear and the the the, the absence of any real uh, desire to be free. And the, the old the Christian bargain, uh, the, the, the the Christian society was that the individual uh, was governed by conscience and mm. restrained himself. This is Edmund Burke's great contributions restrained himself uh, rather than waiting for the state to restrain him and, and therefore there was no need of a strong state to restrain people the society could be free precisely because people were prepared uh, to place restraints upon themselves that's gone mm. and and, and, that, and people find themselves disliking and uh, being anxious to be rid of the, the rather um, alarming freedom which was given to them by this arrangement and fall into the arms of Big Brother, which I think they have, and most, most people do. I, I, it's, uh, some time ago, I would have, I used to believe in talk of silent majorities and all the rest of it, but as time's gone by, it seems to me to be more and more obvious that people are not, people are, are certainly not uh, enthusiastic about maintaining their own freedom. I mean, the willingness with which people surrendered freedoms after the the terrorist uh, horrors of 2001. Yeah. Uh, extraordinary, uh, even though the, the measures taken had very little to do with, uh, with with any real threat of our deal. The people were quite happy. When I, when I go through, as I very seldom do now, airport security checks in which the, the individual is treated more or less like a convicted criminal. Yes. Uh, I, I, would, I would sometimes mutter to myself, satirically, and what I found was not that people standing next to me would say, yeah, yeah, it's all ridiculous. They say, well, uh, don't you think it's your duty to help keep society safe? In the and I just yeah, realized it's ridiculous. This is the general belief. The actual, the old-fashioned uh, idea that you stand up for your freedom and don't let, don't let everybody mess around with you has almost completely died in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. I think it's died because it's it, 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 because the, the, the type of Christianity which informed it has died as well. And look at the church. I mean, of all the bodies which have surrendered mm. most completely to the prescriptions of the COVID state, the church must be in the forefront. It, it closed its churches, as far as I can tell, without even being asked to. Yeah, there's something very concerning about that. And you were you were talking about the the sort of uh, the self the self removal of uh, of Christianity, Protestant Christianity. And Nassim Taleb made a similar comment in one of his books that. It's actually really important to maintain and to defend and to protect uh, Christianity, particularly in the West, because as you were, as you were saying now, there's a sense of morality and ethics that 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 is you know that accompanies that. Well, yes, I, it, 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 it's gone. It, mm. it was quite deeply damaged by the philosophical developments of the 19th century. And then the death blow was dealt with by the, the First World War, in which the, the church is largely endorsed as a great war for civilization, 
uh, a war which was not a great war for civilization. Mm. It was a barbaric slaughterhouse uh, fought for cynical ends and yeah. by and large disaster to those countries which took part in it. And that was the end. I, the, the Christianity obviously has a vestigial existence. The, the churches and cathedrals still stand there. They're largely empty at service time. Uh, the, the schools have more or less stopped teaching Christianity as a religion, more as an anthropological peculiarity, which some mm. people might be odd enough to believe. Uh, but it is dead in Western societies. It, it's, it, it continues to exist in slightly stronger form in the United States, but I think people often overestimate that strength. I don't think uh, mass Christianity in the United States is going to last a while much longer. So it's gone, and, and as it goes, we, we, we live in the afterglow of Christianity, that, that period between the sun setting and the disappearance of the light in which uh, you can still pretend that things are as they were, but they will stop being as they were. They are stopping being as they were. And one of the characteristics of our new future seems to me to be a strong state, which I now find myself living under rather sooner than I expected. Yeah, you've, and I mean, you mentioned the First World War, and I know you've written about that, and you, you sort of accompany that with the devolution of marriage. Um, what, do you, what do you mean by, by the, 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 the devolution of marriage? Well, it's a devolution. I mean, it's, it has been more or less eviscerated. Uh, marriage was a, was a foundation of strong, independent, private life because the family, uh, and I say this, make this point in my first book, The Abolition of Britain, quoting of all people, D.H. Lawrence, <coughs> who points out that the um, who points out that that the Roman state, uh, where there was no independent family life, was all powerful, and that the the small independent kingdom of married life is a huge uh, a huge restraint on state power, and it's a place where people learn to be what they are, and, and they're not uh, they're not either indoctrinated either by the state or by commerce to, to be consumers or serfs. And without it, you have very little. But the problem is that this this form of marriage depends wholly on marriage being indissoluble. Uh, the moment it becomes soluble and marriages can be can be broken up, particularly with the sanction of the church, then you you, you don't have marriage anymore. You just have some people living together who can be separated at any time. And the law in England on marriage is now such that if is the reverse of all other contract law. If you if you go to civil court when when you, you've had a contract with somebody else and they've broken it, you go to the court to get the to, to get the person who's broken the contract either to fulfil his side of it or to be punished in some way for not mm. doing so uh, by, by, by having damages awarded against him or her. In marriage, uh, the person who breaks the contract uh, has all the force of the law behind him or her. Right, uh, and the person who wants to remain married. Uh, and wants to stay true to his or her original promise to remain married for life can be ejected by force under the threat of prison uh, from the family home. And the law will also take steps uh, to ex exclude that person from the family home and indeed uh, to take uh, property away from them, which was marital property. The whole weight of, of, of the civil law in, in England, and I think it is so in most of the, of the Western countries, is in favor of the contract breakup. Uh, yes. It's a unique position. It's amazing that, that, less, that so little attention is paid to this. And as a result, marriage b b becomes a, 
extraordinary weak thing and uh, the state becomes more powerful than it has done. Mm, and what uh, you're suggesting is that marriage should be... On the, 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 the process of, of moral collapse by the churches and, uh, and quite uh, elaborate changes in civil law which have brought this position about. But really, marriage is, is now entirely a matter for the individual Society and morality don't really support it at all, and it's, it's, so we are left with this howling desert across which you know, state power blows unencumbered, and commercial power as well. And, and particularly, the mothers of children are now informed that, that working in a call centre or, 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 or some other drudgery is is superior and uh, morally better, and also more adventurous and more fun than than raising the next generation, which I would have thought was probably the most responsible thing which most of us ever do. Yeah, I mean, and as as you said, um, there's a, there's a sense of morality that's um, that's been lost, and largely to do probably with you know the rise of postmodernism and um, the adoption of it by the left. Uh, who've, who, no, 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 no. You're, 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 you're way behind. These these things are these things have their origins and developments in the nineteenth and early twentieth centuries, uh, well before postmodernism and all this stuff. What what do you think led to it then? What do I think? I'm sorry, I didn't catch your question. I'm sorry. I was just asking, what do you think then led to this to this uh, regression? I, I'm still I, I, I still can't catch the word. What do I think? What before regression? Um, what do you think led to this regression of this sort of uh, the devolution well, it, of marriage and? As I say, it's not. It, 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 it's these things are, are all the consequences of the of the, the, the revolutions in thought of the nineteenth century and and mm. then the first world war which followed. This is a change which has happened. Christendom no longer exists. We live in a post Christian world, uh, though the, the, the still the semblance of, of, of Christianity it's not it has no real force. Uh, a lot of people were, for instance, very enthusiastic about the uh, about the late. Pope John Paul II, who's undoubtedly a, a great man and, a, and a, a, a considerable spiritual leader, but what was interesting about him was that he wasn't able really to regenerate or save the, the Roman Catholic Church from what is now plainly uh, something approaching terminal decline. And that was the strongest force of Christianity in the West. Well, I'm not a Roman Catholic. I, I, I have a, a wholly different uh, persuasion, but any, anybody can see that the the Roman Catholic Church was, for centuries, the, the strongest pillar of intransigent uh, Christian thought and philosophy, and it now it no longer is. It's gone, and it, what people have to realize is we now have to live in in a, in a post-Christian world, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. That's where you are. Mm. Uh, it, it's not coming back in any form that I can see. Christianity will survive in some form or another until the end of time, but it, it, it's simply the period when it was dominant and, and had the power of states behind it and was not being systematically attacked by the state and other quarters is over. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's a very bad thing, but I, there isn't any point in, in, in doing anything other than recognizing that it's happened. I, there's many things in the world that I regret and wish hadn't happened, but I can't sit around pretending that they haven't happened or not adapting my way of life to the to, to the change which has taken place. Yeah, you said you said in a in a in an interview, um, I 
can't remember when it was, but I remember you said that you don't intend to to change the world. Uh, you're just merely observing and commenting. Do you, is that a is that a position you think that that is healthy for for people, or, or do you think we should be wanting to change things? I have no choice. I mean, people of, of, of my opinions have no point at which they can enter the, the political system, mm. or even enter those those parts of. Um, the academy or the media, which are influential on on policy, I'm excluded from it. I'm regarded more or less as as, as round bend, and nobody people might be entertained or vaguely interested in what I say. But there's absolutely no possibility that I will ever influence any government. So uh, I I have to be realistic and accept that. I I, I will my my job is to tell the truth, uh, yeah. whether it makes immediate difference or not because telling the truth is a is, is a virtue in itself yes and it doesn't matter whether it has any observable effects and there's an interest i don't not very keen on gk chesterton but in one of the father brown stories there is a, there is a moment where father brown says quite rightly that the important thing is we we, we don't really see uh, the world as it is we, we're like people looking at a tapestry from the wrong side and thinking we discern a pattern, whereas the pattern is actually on the other side, we don't see it. And what we do here matters somewhere else in ways which we are often too unwise and ill-informed to understand. So I act on that basis, that, that we are told that the, the telling of truth and the pursuit of justice are good in themselves, and I'll do that. But I have no illusion that anything I do makes any difference. I can take part in campaigns on individual issues in which I might conceivably prevent something from happening. Mm. Uh, which is about the recent campaign I took part in against this, the slandering of the late Bishop George Bell, uh, is one example of that. And I'm, I'm very glad that I did that. We, we got some sort of restitution, but not mm. as much as we've done. And I take part as vigorously as I can in the defense of liberty and the defense of people's livelihoods against stupidity and, uh, and unwisdom in the, current, uh, in, in the current COVID crisis. And maybe just possibly if, uh, if enough people stand up against it, the worst of the damage may be prevented. But that's all. It's preventing things. It's not, I'm not a, I can't beget or pursue or create uh, any kind of political outcome. So I don't. I couldn't, be, I couldn't conceivably be selected as a candidate for parliament by any of the major parties, which mm. I take as a conflict. And if by some really bizarre chance I did become a member of parliament, I'd be wholly isolated at Westminster because I'd have no allies, so I could achieve nothing. So I, 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 I'm unillusioned about all this. Mm. Uh, it's, it's important not to imagine that you have some sort of uh, some, some sort of power or possibility of power. Sometimes the powerlessness is in some ways a stimulus of thought. If you don't mind me being a bit forward here, but I, it, 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 it appears that you're underplaying the power of spreading of ideas which is what you do? Not at all. I mean, I, I've been spreading these ideas uh, pretty much the same ones consistently now for, for 20 years. Mm. And I don't have a measuring device small enough to register the effect that anything I've said has had. And everything that I've warned against has taken place regardless. Yeah. As I said at the beginning, you've been right about everything. <laughs> well, not everything. But I mean, I, I have been right about a lot of things, which wasn't particularly difficult. I mean, this is the, 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 
the problem with people like me, I'm among the last uh, people in England who was educated up to point according to the old standards. Mm. Uh, I, was, I was taught how to think rather than what to think. And yeah. Given the base, and let me finish. Uh, the, the, the point is, I'm not by the standards of my own childhood. I'm not particularly well educated. In mm. fact, I've got bad reasons we won't go into here. I sabotage a lot of my own education. But this, the bizarre thing is that the current generations are so badly educated and so poorly trained in thought uh, that someone like me can look like an intellectual. I mean, good heavens, that, that's, it, it, it's a sort of advantage for me. It makes me look better than I am. But it's a tragic reflection on a society if someone like me can look like an intellectual, I can tell you. That was a great line. I, I saw. I saw you. You said that in another um, in another interview some time ago. Where you said that uh, universities are teaching students what to think and not how to think. Uh, and that that really that really just hit home. And that's a big problem all around the world. That's true. And it, it, this is the whole. This is one of the reasons why universities have ceased to be places where independent thought flourishes. Mm. Uh, because of this the. The, the idea of, of them as, as sort of seminaries of the new thought, rather than as places where where thought is pursued for its own sake, these contradict each other. So, a university which is, in fact, a seminary of the new thought, uh, will reject with hostility both in in its formal academic teaching and in its societies and debating clubs and everywhere else. Uh, will reject uh, anything which is unorthodox. They're just they're just places of orthodoxy. And we're seeing that all over the world now in terms of the cancelling of people with with different views and opinions, safe spaces. Uh, it's 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 a big problem, and it's one that seems to be growing. Actually, not it's not retreating. It's been going on for years. I, mean, I I'm amused, by the way, if people get worked up about it now as if it was some kind of new phenomenon. Been going mm. on. I mean, I, when I was a Trotskyist, I used to do it myself. But the interesting thing was, when I tried to stop people from speaking when I was at university in the early 1970s, uh, was that quite a lot of, of, of people fought back against us. Uh, the, 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 the lecturers and professors and, uh, and even other students uh, came along and said, no, uh, leave these people alone. We're a place of free speech. And they fought back against us. Now, uh, some coven of of, uh, of Marxists, possibly don't even know they are Marxists, goes along and demands the cancelling of the speaker, and immediately everybody folds. Mm. Uh, not new. Uh, what it is, it's just it's, it's, not, it's just actually reaching now. It's 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 point of total success, and this is the point at which people say, "Oh, we ought to do something about this." Well, good luck with that. But uh, you've left it probably about thirty or forty years too late, guys. It's happened. Orthodoxy is triumphant, and it's not yours. And the police will be along soon to arrest you for it too. You know, that's an interesting comment. You, you say it's perhaps too late. It's it sounds a bit nihilistic. Sorry, it sounds a little bit nihilistic. Surely there is something that can be done. Nihilistic. It's a statement of fact. You, where are the forces in in, in terms of, of numbers or authority mm. or in in the universities of the world? Where are the forces lined up? Uh, I mean, a, a few metropolitan journalists who, who say suddenly discovered, oh gosh, look, 
uh, thought is being squeezed in the universities. Uh, <laughs> not going to fight against this enormous monolith uh, of orthodoxy and conformism, which has been created by 50 years of, uh, of active and dedicated cultural revolution, which nobody believes has happened. What is, what is a possible solution then? There isn't one. It's over. Western civilization is finished. Can you stop? So what do we do? We just do we just now have to sit back and adapt to the new? Sure, you're right. You can do you can do what you like, but you won't. Uh, you're, 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 you're like a mouse trying to herd elephants. <laughs> no one pays any attention to you. It's over. You should have listened to me uh, a lot longer ago than that. I mean, there probably was a point. I mean, yeah. I, I think maybe if twenty odd years ago people had begun to rally against it. When I wrote my first book, The Abolition Prison, I actually thought I would write it in the hope of, of, of stirring up a rebellion against the, against the destruction of my civilization. Uh, all I got was abuse. Bit by bit by bit, the book, uh, long after it was published, began to become quite widely read. Oh, this is, you know, great, but I didn't write it as an obituary. Uh, but I now realize that it was. The, the, the time that I wrote it, uh, it was uh, it was a matter of mockery that I thought was. Now most people I know think that. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I'm you taking. Know, you know the curse. Of, you know the curse of Cassandra always to be right, never to be believed. Well, I I could get very upset about this, but I declined to do so. I just, I just simply think mm. it's quite funny. And uh, my my watchword for life is in between the crisis and catastrophe. We may as well have a glass of champagne. I, I refuse to be upset about it. It's, it's already happened. What's the point? You know the story of the the Austro-Hungarian and the German officer discussing the state of the Central Powers in 1918, and the, the German officer says the, the position is is uh, hopeless. Uh, the position is, is, is the position is serious. Says the, says the Prussian. Mm. It's very. Serious. But it is not hopeless, and the Austro-Hungarian replies, "No, no, you're quite wrong. It's hopeless, but it's not serious." <laughs> what? Uh, so you're saying just just take a glass of wine and enjoy the ride? Well, no, no, you're not going to enjoy it. I'm just saying. Here's what is you, you, <laughs> you tell me what forces there are, uh, what forces you can after the 50 years of unopposed, mm. dedicated, uh, profoundly determined, and I have to say. Uh, Creditably uh, determined and, and, and consistent uh, cultural, moral, and social revolution in every institution you care to name. Uh, where are the forces uh, that are going to rally against this? And I look around and I think no, they, they don't exist. Yeah. And there's this ever, this is ever expanding encroachment of sort of this globalized, this globalism. Uh, big brother state i mean for example i know your position on on the eu and brexit i i i do find it somewhat uh, well, whimsical. Brand, well uh, in terms of in terms of the i think you used the term that i that I, if it's correct me if i'm wrong flex, flex it is that right well that's actually a term used by others which is could could be used to describe our position but, but i i wanted britain to leave the european union mm. but most of all, and this is my most significant objection, was that ultimately the English system of common law and the whole English legal system of, of true presumption of innocence 
could not coexist when it was one of two countries along with the along with Ireland and the whole of the European Union, uh, which had these systems against the more or less Roman law, uh, authority-based legal systems of the others. And whatever else happened, uh, these possessions running back to Magna Carta were so precious mm. that if we had to leave to keep them, then we'd have to leave. I wasn't interested in the trade aspect particularly, uh, but the legal and political aspects, such as who, who governs the country where your court cases are ultimately judged. I was quite prepared to make any kind of economic compromise uh, to get out politically. Uh, what I found was that when the... the, the I, I'm against referenda as well. I think they're yes. uh, <laughs> uh, dangerous to, to parliamentary government, and I think I've been born out of that. But what we got instead was a campaign in which the, the whole European issue got mixed up with, with globalism, with people who wanted to, you know, to, to introduce the British people to the tangy flavor of chlorine washed chicken and have, uh, have absolutely no, and have a, open our, our trade borders to the world and, and as a result, close them to the European Union. And a lot of these people simply don't understand, as my friend Christopher Booker, who died very sadly last year, uh, did understand that if a country leaves the European Union and becomes a, a third country, the consequences for trade between that country and the European Union are colossal mm. and quite possibly catastrophic. And I thought that any method should be used to avoid that if we could get out of the rest of the stuff. And that Norway seemed to me to have a, a very sensible compromise arrangement, uh, which would give us a lot of what we wanted, but would not uh, destroy us economically. And the, a lot of people don't realize we have not yet left the European Union in reality. That, that's coming in a couple of months' time. And that's when we'll discover in detail what it means to leave the single market. And at that point, I think people might say, oh, gosh, Hitchens might have had a point in saying we should have stayed in the single market, but until it happens, no one's going to pay the blindest bit of attention. Mm. Yet again, the warning was made. Nobody paid any attention, but people will compliment me for my prescience when it's far too late for it to be any years. That's my uh, life. Well, that sort of thing. <laughs> I'll be one of those complimenting and saying you should have no, listened to Peter. It's it's completely useless. I did absolutely. <laughs> it's very interesting watching it from this side of the world. I'll be honest. Um, well, you have your own problems there, which I I, I won't get involved in. No, sure, it's sure. There's certainly not a problem. <laughs> um. You, you said something recently which I, I quite enjoyed. Um, you said that there's no such thing as a c centrometer. Uh, I think you used the term when it comes to politics. Uh, <laughs> there's no real center. Well, the, the term is just is used by people to, to claim a sort of special legitimacy for their own position. Center-left, center-right means fundamentally mm. uh, agreeing with a set of propositions, mm. which I agree with. Uh, which have been adopted by the main political parties, and which I say I call Eurocommunists. Uh, but what I, the point that I was making, which I make again, is people uh, act as if there was some kind of objective measure of rightness, uh, mm. in politics, uh, which there isn't. And as I say, if you if, if you have a centrometer, can I borrow it? Uh, <laughs> I like to try on there. There is it's, it's like that. Um, there's this thing, this test you can do on like a political compass. Uh, they, they try to work out from the answers to various questions where you are on the spectrum. It, it can't cope with me. 
because uh, here I am, I'm quite in, in, in technical sense, I'm quite left wing on, on economics and trade unions and things of that kind and, and, on, and on personal liberty. Uh, but I'm right wing on, on, on punishment rather than rehabilitation and, uh, and, and on the maintenance of national borders. And you can't really work out what my position is from that. I've, I've always been puzzled. I, 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 I won't say I'm an admirer because I'm not an admirer of anybody, but I was very interested by Charles de Gaulle and his rather clever combination of, of patriotism, strong defense, uh, but also a, a very, a, 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 a quite a quite a left-wing economic uh, arrangement. It, it puzzled me uh, that this rather clever combination of attributes hasn't been tried in in more places, but it, it isn't. And it, it just it just doesn't exist. My political position doesn't exist in politics. Uh, but there is no such thing as a center, and people should stop imagining uh, that they can objectify. Uh, a subjective choice. If, if you want to be a Eurocommunist, then be one. But don't tell me it's the only position that's legitimate and anybody who wanders away from it is an extremist. Because there certainly were times when mm. almost all the precepts of Eurocommunism were, were extreme in themselves. Uh, it, by, the, by the judgments of the center of, say, 70 years ago. What would you consider as right-wing uh, it's a term that's always used in the media and i'm fascinated by how people uh define it i don't use it i mean, only use it in, in inverted commas if people i might say people describe me as right-wing just to use it because that's because they do but i would not in any attempt at an intelligent discussion use myself as a category but uh, can you say that then the same about left wing? Um, it's it's not quite so obvious, but you should. I mean, I I, I try to I, again. What sometimes when in, in 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 urgent immediate journalism, one resorts to shorthands, and, and I, I I have used it. I prefer not to use it, mm. uh, but because it often confuses people actually makes things less clear than they, they ought to be. Um, what does it mean? I, yeah, I it does. Yeah. At the core of it is to believe, at the, at the core of it is the belief that man can be transformed, uh, that human nature is malleable. Uh, this is the old, the great uh, divide, mm. the Helvetius divide between the old belief that man is made in the image of God and is therefore fundamentally unalterable and the idea that a new man can be created uh, and, and here you get into Rousseau and the Jacobins and, uh, and the, the Paris Commune and everything that followed afterwards and I think that uh, I, I tend to think that that really is the, the point of division but I doubt whether many, many people who regard themselves as left-wing have thought about that for a single second. Yeah yeah people don't really know what what these things mean anymore they just you know they just throw it around it's not about, it's not about having a strong welfare state i i just want to chat to you about one it's more thing it's not about having a strong welfare state i mean any mm. any sensible conservative would be in favor of a strong welfare state in fact the most most yeah okay 
Sorry, yeah, there's a, there's a gremlin in the system yeah, that's, that's throwing the connection all over the place. Sorry about that. Um, the one the one last thing that I've got here um, that I, I really enjoyed uh, was was when you exp- you explained once you explained once that integration is preferable to multiculturalism. Well, I, when the, the, the best thing by a mile about the 1960s left uh, was its hatred of what we then called racialism. Mm. And we used to chant one race, the human race, uh, something which I still very much believe. In fact, it's also enshrined in, in scripture uh, as, a, as, as something which we, we believe to be the case. And what I thought at the time and what I thing now is that if you really do wish to have people treated entirely equally and without prejudice then you ha- that's what you have to aim for uh, and that the the integration of people into a society is the best way of doing that and I think there have been some great successes in this actually uh, modern Britain is one of the most integrated countries I think in, in, in the world and the, in most cases it works quite well it's not faultless mm. uh, and the, the gaps in it but the many of the faults in what's happened in Britain arise from the adoption by the state of the policy of multiculturalism which keeps people apart uh, how do you encourages people to form to form solitudes uh, with their mm. backs turned on I think that's a great pity how, how you respond to to the comment that well, we're all immigrants, Peter. And I don't think it's. I mean, I, you'd, you'd have to be uh, completely insensitive to the power of time to make that case. And there, there are plenty of people in in Britain, and I would imagine in other parts of the world as well, who could trace their connection to the land on which they live back for for many, many, many centuries before um, before recorded time began. Mm. Uh, to say that we're all immigrants when this is also true just seems to me to be a trite remark and uh, many of us may become immigrants uh, in in, in time having first of all become immigrants or refugees and none of us should ever rule that out but I I think it's just just not a true statement to say that we're all I think you're right Peter I I want to thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, uh, despite all the technical glitches that have occurred throughout this conversation. Um, I hope you have a wonderful day. Further, well, I will. I will make an offer. I don't know whether these problems are ones which particularly arise between us, but if you if you find the result is too scrappy, uh, then we could have a rematch. But you are going to have to get the clocks right. <laughs> I would absolutely, absolutely love to do that. I recommend strongly that you read an article which I wrote um, for an American magazine, uh, which will come up in a search of Now is Not the Time, which explains the whole business of time zones uh, and begins with the, the the day when I flew backwards across the international dateline, which is the moment at which I began to understand it. Uh, so I flew, I flew one... Monday morning uh, from a, a grim town called Providenia in Russia into the previous Sunday afternoon in Alaska. <laughs>
And it's both, it's enormous fun and it's tremendously stimulating to thought. And I, I recommend it because it, you, will, you will then understand the whole nonsense and time zone. But if you do want to do it again, be warned Absolutely. that in a, in, a, in a very short time, uh, we put our clocks back to natural organic time as opposed to the genetically modified time we're on at the moment in what is still laughingly referred to as the United Kingdom. <laughs> no, that'll be a great that'll be a great thing. I would love to do that. The um, offer is definitely there if you find that it, it doesn't work because I'd much rather do this do this properly than leave it uh, in a mess. If, if, <laughs> if you if you can work out what the technical problem was. Thank you, Peter. I will stay in touch with you. It's been a great pleasure. Have a great day, and thank you everybody for for tuning in. My name is Jim. This was Jim Warfare: The Battle of Ideas. <laughs>